0: my 1 and into chapter 2, starting at verse 1. In the month of Nisan, in the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, Why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This cannot be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, what is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, How long will your journey take, and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. I also said to him, If it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of Trans Euphrates, so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the royal park, so he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple. And for the city wall, and for the residence I will occupy. And because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my requests. So I went to the governors of Trans Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent army officers and cavalry with me. When Sambalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few others. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. By night, I went through the valley gate towards the jackal well and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem, that which had been broken down, and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on towards the fountain gate and the king's pool, that there was not enough room for my mount to get through, "'so I went up the valley by night, examining the wall. "'Finally, I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. "'The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, "'because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests "'or the nobles or the officials or any others who would be doing the work. "'Then I said to them, "'You see the trouble we are in. "'Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burnt with fire.' Come, let us rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. They said, they replied, let us start rebuilding, so they began this good work. But when Sambalat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you are doing, they asked. Are you rebelling against the king? I answered them by saying, The God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it.
1: Have you ever been in a job or a situation, maybe, where you've been working with others and it's said of somebody that their heart isn't in it? It's not in the job. Their heart isn't there. What's the outcome for that person or the job that they're doing? Well, either the job is done very badly, or they just give up, because their heart's not in it. They're not passionate about it. They, they don't really want to do it. They're going through the motions. And when we read the book of Nehemiah, a lot of it is about doing the Lord's work. And if Nehemiah's heart wasn't in it, then he would have given up at the first sign of any trouble And if you read through the book of Nehemiah, there is a lot of trouble, but he didn't give up because he had a heart for the Lord's work. He did. He really had a heart for the Lord's work, and that's what we're going to see in the first two chapters. I've called this sermon, A Heart for the Lord's Work, because as we read through these first two chapters, we get an insight into what is going on in Nehemiah's heart, And we can see that his heart is wholly devoted to the Lord and to his work. He has a heart for the Lord's work. Now, a bit of context, the book of Nehemiah is after Ezra in your Bible, but it's also after Ezra chronologically. So Ezra's gone back to the promised land. He's rebuilt the temple, or he might be still rebuilding, possibly. And then Nehemiah comes, and his job is to, rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, as as we read earlier. Um, As I said, it is is about doing the Lord's work. And in Nehemiah's case, the Lord's work was, for him, rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. Now, for us, the Lord's work could be, well, it's various different things. Um, Some of us are called to be full-time pastors of the church, uh, and that is a very specific role. Others of us are called to be uh, work in a secular job, and we we do the Lord's work diligently there and diligently in church. Uh, But one thing we are all called to do, and it was so helpful to have um, Leah's interview earlier, we are all called to be witnesses. Um, So tonight, there are various things we could apply the Lord's work to, but I'm going to specifically talk about the work of evangelism, because that is a job we are all called to. So when I'm talking about the Lord's work, um, I'm going to be applying it to the area of evangelism Particularly, Um, but what we see, as I said, is the heart for the Lord's work. How do we? What what does the heart for the Lord's work really look like? And as we look through these two chapters, I think there are three things that we see in Nehemiah's heart. Uh, And as we work through it, we'll we'll look at each in turn. And the first is it's chapter one, when Nehemiah sees a need, he prays. When he sees a need. He prays, and this is chapter 1. So let's have a look, first of all, at the need. So verses 1 through to 4, um, well, they set the scene for the whole book. Okay, Without, without these verses, nothing that follows would make sense. Um, we're introducing the main character, Nehemiah. Um, he's a Jew, uh, and he's a Jew who's living in exile. Um, he's probably, can't be sure, but he's probably lived his whole life in Susa, the capital of the Persian Empire, uh, and therefore, unlikely to have been to the land of Israel. He may have been, but he's, he doesn't live there. He lives in Susa, um, and we don't know, but it's un, maybe unlikely that he's ever been to Jerusalem. But despite all of that, he has a genuine and deep concern for the Lord's people and for the Lord's place, Jerusalem. Uh, and so when Hanani comes from uh, Judah, and um, You don't read of the pleasantries that they exchange, but instead, straight away, Nehemiah asks after God's people. He said, I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. Why was Nehemiah so concerned with those in Jerusalem? You know, he might have had a little church family in Susa, or some other... You know, other Jews he was living with, why, was, why wasn't he just concerned with them? Why was he concerned with Jerusalem as well? Seems out of his remit a little bit. Well, it's because Nehemiah understood that the welfare of God's chosen people and place ultimately meant the welfare of God's glory here on earth. The welfare of God's people and place meant the uh, welfare of God's glory. On earth. That's why he was so concerned. That's why he was interested in uh, the Jewish remnant in Jerusalem and how Jerusalem was in itself. But as the terrible report came back to Nehemiah, again, his response shows his genuine concern. It drives him, as James pointed out earlier, to earnest prayer. Verse 4 When I heard these things, I sat down and wept for some days. I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. He was moved by the need of God's people. And what a challenge that is to us. The challenge is, are we really concerned for the welfare of other believers? Are we really concerned about the Lord and his glory? Are we really concerned for the Lord's work outside of leamington and warwick it's a challenge isn't it because i i know for myself when i i come to pray in the mornings it's often about me and my family which is a good thing to pray for it's about church good thing to pray for but how often do i actually go further than that and pray for the needs in this country let alone the needs in the world here are some specific things that could help us look outside of our own little world and consider God's work further afield. Firstly, the prayer meeting. Do you go to the prayer meeting? Because, uh, well, for me, there is no more encouraging meeting that we can have. Um, it's at the highlight of our month in the Howlett household. We take it in turns to um, go out at midweek, and whoever's turn happens to be when it lands on the first week of the month, well, we're jealous of the other one, because it's there's nothing against home groups, but the prayer meeting, there's something special about the prayer meeting. Because when you hear other people pray, well, you get a glimpse into their heart as well. And when you hear some of the, the people pray in our church family, you can hear that they have a heart for the Lord's work. When, they hear, when, we hear, when I hear them pray about Musa or the Newton Webs in Japan or um, UBM or Good News for Everyone, we hear their heart for the Lord's work beyond Lemington and Warwick. And that blesses my soul. It's such an encouraging meeting. Do you go to the prayer meeting? There's one this week. You could come along. So that's the first thing. Uh, secondly, do you read the prayer letters that Alison sends out each Friday? As you read those and start praying through those, you will find yourself concerned with the welfare of God's people across the world. It's two very simple things that, well, there's a challenge to me. Am I concerned for the welfare of God's glory? Well, if I'm struggling with that, well, I need to get out to the prayer meetings. I need to read the prayer letters, because that will uh, point me to the needs of, well, our local church, our local area, our country, but also our world. Nehemiah saw the need in Jerusalem, and friends, there is a great need for for gospel work today too. In this country, there are many towns and villages with no gospel church. For those who've been at the church planting prayer meetings, we know that is true of our local area. And yet, even in this country, we are far more blessed spiritually than many countries across the world. There is a great need for gospel work. Nehemiah saw that need. Do we see the need for gospel work? So he sees a need, but how does he respond? Well, he responds in prayer. He's moved to pray. I've said it already. For some days he mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. And this prayer, even though it's only recorded once for Nehemiah, is a continual prayer. In fact, he seems to have prayed this solidly for four months. Um, Chapter 2 starts in the month of Nisan, which is four months after the start of chapter 1, Kislev. Four months of solid prayer. He prayed earnestly. He didn't give up. Even though it may have seemed to him after two or three months that God wasn't answering his prayer. Friends, don't give up in prayer. Don't give up for praying for a loved one who doesn't know the Lord or something in your life which you've been praying for for maybe years and you haven't seen any answer, do not give up. There was a man who was uh, known to the beach teams of St. Ives for many, many years. Uh, He was a very helpful man. He did a lot of stuff on the house. But he wasn't a believer. Um, His wife was a believer. His children were believers. uh, And over the years, he had many, many conversations with um, people on UBM, people in his local church. But he never trusted the Lord Jesus. That is, until a few years ago, um, this man, well, he was told by his doctor that he had a few weeks to live. Uh, That kind of news went around um, UBM, uh, and people prayed, and they prayed, they were praying for him regularly anyway, but they prayed for him more earnestly. And a few days later, he was wonderfully converted through a letter from a UBMer and a chat with a neighbor. He he died later that year, um, but he was converted after years and years and years of prayer. Keep on praying for those things, for gospel opportunities, for conversions. So he prays, but what does he pray, and how can we learn from it? Uh, And as, as we look at this prayer, I think, although Nehemiah is not, uh, leader of God's people at this point, we can see that he is a man fit for that role. Uh, And his prayer starts with a very high view of God. Nehemiah starts with a very high view of God, reminding himself and us who it is that we pray to. Now, when I was preparing this, I didn't know that James was going to speak this morning on you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. But here, Nehemiah has a very high view of God. He prays to the Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God. And there's so many things we could say. But briefly, he is, at, that, at that point, he is saying, this is a God who is able to answer prayer. Although maybe unapproachable, if it's just the Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God. But he's able. And then he goes on, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. He is not just able to answer prayer. He is approachable and willing to answer prayer. This is Nehemiah's view of God. And this is what gives him the confidence to pray. It's the security of this God that he prays to. It's in that security that he prays. And makes his request. Compare that to the security of Jerusalem, where the walls have been broken down. It's vastly different, isn't it? He prays in the security of the God of heaven, the great and awesome God. But then he moves on to confession. And what a key part of prayer that is. It's in the Lord's Prayer, but how often is it in ours? How often do we spend time confessing Sin. In the mornings, at night, how often is it in our prayers? Here it is in Nehemiah's. He confesses his own, but notice also he confesses the sins of of God's people. If you read the end of verse 6, I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. He starts off by confessing on behalf of God's people. It's an intermediary prayer. And this seems to be the pattern of godly leaders in the Bible. So Abraham does it, Moses does it, Solomon does it. They all lead God's people and pray on behalf of God's people. Uh, And Nehemiah does it here. Uh, But Nehemiah still needs to confess his own sin as well as that of the people, doesn't he? He confesses the sins that we Israelites done and including myself. But this intermediary prayer is exemplified in none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. In John 17, for example, he prays for his people. And he continues to do that perfectly. If you read Romans 8:34, it says, Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that who was raised and is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Christ prays for his people. And Christ praying for us is so much better than Nehemiah or Abraham or Moses or Solomon for two reasons. Well, there's probably more, but there's two. He, Firstly, he never needed to confess his own sin. All the others needed to confess their own sin as well. Christ never did. There's one reason it's better. And second reason, he is still doing it. Do you notice in that um, verse in Romans, he was raised and is at the right hand of God, interceding for us. Christ praying for us is so much better than Nehemiah praying for us because Christ is alive and still interceding for us. So even in this prayer, Nehemiah gives us a wonderful picture of the Lord Jesus. He confesses his sin. But then the third, thing, third aspect of this prayer is that he claims the promises of God. He claims the promises of God. He quotes God's promises back at God in a reverent way. Uh, he says, Lord, this is what you've promised in the past. Please, would you fulfill your promises now? Uh, I don't know if it's just um, my children or Barney because Josiah can't speak. Um, but I don't know if uh, parents have had a similar experience of uh, children saying to, to you, oh, but you promised. It might be, um, well, in, in our household, is usually, I've promised to play cricket, and then some plan has changed, and I've had to say no. Uh, and the, the response comes out, oh, but dad, you promised we could play. Um, and it's a bit like that. It's, that's a little bit like what Nehemiah is doing with God. He's saying, you have promised to do this. Will you now do it? But unlike Barney with me, Nehemiah claims that promise, knowing that God is unchanging and will always fulfill his promises. I change, and often I have to say, sorry, Barney, but my pl- the plans have changed, and sometimes I'm right, sometimes I'm wrong. But we can claim the promises of God knowing that they are sure and certain. What does he say? He says, remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses. If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. He actually starts with saying, God, you've, you've kept this side of the promise. I see you've worked justly. We were unfaithful, so you've scattered us. And seeing that God acts justly, gives him the confidence again to carry on to the second half of the promise. And it says, but if you return to me, I will gather them and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. He continues on to the promise to bring them back if they return to the Lord. He claims the promise, knowing that God keeps his promise. promises. He's happy to claim God's promises, and so should we be. But the challenge is, are we familiar enough with the great promises that God gives us in his word? So when we see the great need of the gospel, are we quick to pray saying that God has promised to build his church and that the gates of hell will not prevail against it? And some of the other great promises, are we willing to say, Lord, you've promised to be with us to the end of the age. He claims promises. And then the last little bit of his prayer, he finally comes to make his request. The bit that many of us would have come to straight away, he comes through right at the end. He makes his request. And his request is very simple. It's success in his venture that day, and we'll come to that in a minute, and mercy in the sight of the king. As I've already said, Nehemiah has been praying for Four months and it, it may be that we have the last of those prayers recorded and because it talks about um, success today, um, but he's got some sort of plan. so he's, he's got a, an idea of how he's going to go about making his request to the king, and he's asking God to give him success. He needs an audience with the king. And he's asking God to go before. And actually, that's a massive ask. Because what he's going to ask the king is to leave him and go to Jerusalem and rebuild the walls. And and Nehemiah was the cupbearer. So he's actually asking the king to get rid of one of his staff, essentially. And say, yeah, you can go to Jerusalem and rebuild the walls. Huge request. So he prays that God would go before. So first thing we see, a heart, of, uh, a heart for the Lord's work, is Nehemiah sees a need and he prays. But secondly, we've seen that he's prayed for four months, but he doesn't just pray. Next, he sees an opportunity and he acts on it. He sees an opportunity and acts on it. This is verses 1 to 8 of chapter 2. So Nehemiah has three different opportunities here. Uh, and he takes each one. Uh, but before we go any further, I want to just come back to the very last line of chapter one. I was cupbearer to the king. Um, it seems a throwaway comment, but it is significant. Because who was it who I would need to get permission from? It was the king. Where was I placed day to day? In the king's palace. You see, God has his people just in the right place for his work. You are where you are currently because God has put you there. And as we think uh, about looking for, taking gospel opportunities, then actually in some ways you don't need to look any further than where you are. Now, there are times for short-term mission. As you know, um, I'm involved in United Beach missions and that's a good thing. But actually, if I just look around me, I have got gospel opportunities where I am. My neighbors, my colleagues, my family, there are gospel opportunities. Don't be longing for another area, um, area of service so that we can have more gospel opportunities. It's not necessarily a bad thing, but there are gospel opportunities Where you are. So, as we uh, look at the opportunities that Nehemiah has, let's look at the the first one. And I've called it an opportunity to see. um, An opportunity to see. So, remember that Nehemiah needs an audience with the king to make his request. And he had such an opportunity to stand before him. He was the cupbearer, and there was some sort of party or banquet uh, that the king was hosting. It might have been uh, a private party, given that the queen was there. But the point is, Nehemiah had an opportunity to be with the very person he wished to speak to. And given his prayer in chapter 1 was specifying today, that suggests that Nehemiah was praying about this very opportunity. He had an opportunity to see the king. Now, he had a plan to make the most of the opportunity. Um, it says, well he, well, he wouldn't hide how he felt. It said. He was sad in his presence. Now, I don't think this is Nehemiah putting, on, putting it on just to get a reaction from the king. Um, I don't think Nehemiah was just a good actor uh, and convinced the king that he was low. Now, Nehemiah decided that actually he's not going to hide exactly how he felt about Jerusalem. It wasn't him putting it on, but it was actually saying, I'm not going to hide it and deliberately not hiding it. He was sad. His face was sad. Now, being sad in the king's presence was an incredibly risky thing to do. And It was thought that there was no greater privilege than to be before the king. So who could be sad with that privilege? If you're sad, then perhaps you do not value the king. And if you do not value the king, then, well, it may not have gone too well for Nehemiah. It was risky. Looking for an opportunity to make his request was fraught with risk for Nehemiah. And, friends, it, as we've uh, heard from Leah earlier, it can be daunting for us too to look for opportunities to speak of the gospel. To seek to bring a conversation onto spiritual things puts, in, puts us in the limelight and could expose us to ridicule. But how can we do it in our context? Well, I could have had Leah up here to do this exact application because as I've written down here, maybe on Monday morning you could say, how was your weekend? And uh, most people would say, how was yours? And at that point, you could talk about church on Sunday. Now, I wouldn't recommend doing that every week um, because people might cotton on. Um, but, you know, you've got to look for natural opportunities to share the gospel We have opportunities to see unbelievers every single day. Do we see those as opportunities, though? Or do we just think, oh, yeah, it's just another day? We have opportunities with unbelievers every day. We're not going to take everyone. We're not going to have spiritual conversations with everybody every day. But we need to see them and pray for them as if they are gospel opportunities. But secondly, um, Nehemiah has an opportunity to speak. God grants his prayer from chapter one. The king shows mercy by asking, well, Nehemiah, what's the matter? And God works in such a way that the king wants to hear from Nehemiah. He's been given an opportunity to speak. And many of us at this point would have exactly the same reaction. It says that Nehemiah was very much afraid. He's thinking, oh no, God has answered my prayer Now I have to try and take the opportunity. It's daunting. It's a risky prayer to pray, isn't it? Because then when God answers it, it's up to us to take the opportunity. Um, And part of the danger with that is that as soon as we're given an opportunity to speak, we can just reel off this rehearsed speech that just kind of falls out of our mouth. Uh, And the poor person sitting next to us will have no idea what's hit them. They're there thinking, well, I only asked about his weekend... And I've had the whole counsel of God. Um, But thankfully, Nehemiah has a lot more tact than we might. Uh, Notice at this point, he doesn't actually make any sort of request at all. He simply explains why he is sad. And he does it in such a way that connects with the person he is talking to. He talks about in verse 3 about his father's graves or his ancestors' graves. And with that, he immediately has Artaxerxes' sympathy, as graves of ancestors were considered sacred. So the fact that his, the, his ancestors' graves were um, in, in ruins, we've got, he's got a point of connection with the king. He has not pushed all that he wants to say. He has more to say, but he has been patient. Now is not the time to give him everything. Otherwise, he might lose the opportunity. For now, he has just made the connection. So, friends, how do we apply that in our context? How do we make the connection with people in our workplace, at home, that will actually further the opportunity rather than take the opportunity away? Well, a bit like Naomi, we need to be looking for some common ground, and we could talk about very simple. Here's an idea: what about how broken the world is? You could talk about the Titan submersible or the riots in France, and how much other bad news there is in the world, and they will agree with that, and you have a point of connection, and. As that conversation goes on, there may well be opportunities where you can press home how the gospel answers those concerns. We don't need to straight away go in full with the gospel, but we need to find ways of getting in uh, to conversations, a point of connection by which we can get to the gospel. That's what Nehemiah did. And then, thirdly, our third, his third opportunity is an opportunity to ask. But when uh, when Nehemiah does have an opportunity to make his request, he makes the most of it. He was ready for it. He knew what he needed to ask. uh, He knew what he needed to ask for before he started the conversation. He had it in mind what he was going to say. But instead of launching straight in again, do you notice he paused? He paused to pray the king said to me, what is it that you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven. It could have been just as simple as, Lord, help me now. That might have been all he said. But he knew this was a critical conversation and he needed the Lord's help. Friends, when we're in the middle of conversations, gospel conversations, we should be praying. It could be as simple as, Lord, help me now in this conversation. But we should be praying, because we need God's help. But when we do have the opportunity to press home the gospel, are we ready for it when it comes? I was uh, listening to a podcast a few weeks ago by Alistair Begg, and um, he was talking about personal evangelism. And he he gave lots of really helpful tips, but uh, one thing he was saying was, I know, however the conversation goes... If I want to give them the gospel, I need to give them four things. And he, he's got this in the back of his mind as he's having these conversations. I need to get across these four things if I'm going to give them the gospel. And the first is the condition of man. Uh, so the condition of man. So he, talk, he, might, he might talk about how broken the world is. And he'd say, actually, this is a consequence of sin. So he's talking about sin. He needs to get across sin. And uh, secondly, very closely related to that, is the consequence of sin, or the consequences of sin. So not just uh, breaking the world, but the eternal consequences. That's the second thing he needs to get across. This is all in the back of his mind as he's, he's talking. The third thing is the remedy for sin. He knows he needs to get to Jesus. You can talk about sin, we can talk about the consequences, but he needs to get to Jesus. And then fourthly, It's the response that is required. So Alistair Begg, as he's having these personal conversations, has these four things in mind. The conversation could go in all sorts of ways. It's not going to be a one-size-fits-all. But it is a one-gospel-fits-all. There is one gospel that needs to be communicated. And the challenge is, are we ready to share that gospel when the opportunity arises? And are we ready for someone to say, what must I do to be saved? It might be that we have the privilege of seeing someone put their trust in Christ for salvation for the first time. But are we ready to have that conversation? Would we know what to say? Now, God will help us as we pray, but it is not a bad thing to think about, well, how would I get from the brokenness of this world onto the gospel How would I get from suffering or uh, creation? You might be talking about creation, evolution, onto the gospel. We need to be ready. Nehemiah, when he saw the opportunity, he took it. So Nehemiah has seen a need and he's prayed. He's seen an opportunity and he's acted on it. And then thirdly and finally, he sees God at work and he continues to trust him. He sees God at work and he continues to trust him. This is end of verse eight through to the end of chapter two. Nehemiah's wish has been granted, his request. He can go back to the land of Judah and begin the work of rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. But as he sets out, there are things that discourage him on the way. And as you read through the book of Nehemiah, uh, the book expands on some of these discouragements and opposition. But for each one, He has shown how good God has been thus far and continues to trust him for the future. Twice in the passage, it says something like, the good hand of his God was on him. He saw God at work and he continued to trust him. So I think in this chapter, there are two discouragements and we'll look at both of them briefly. Discouragement number one actually comes from within God's people, well, potentially comes from within God's people. Uh, And it could come from those laboring in the work. Um, So verses 12 to 16, uh, Nehemiah has gone back to Jerusalem and he is acutely aware of the situation uh, and what might be perceived with him just coming in and immediately uh, announcing his plans to rebuild Jerusalem. As far as we know, he's never built anything. He may have done. Um, And just imagine what it would be like for someone to come in and say, right, this is what we're going to do. We're going to rebuild this wall and then this wall. Uh, and the people there will be thinking, "Hang on a minute, you, you've never lived here. You may never have built something, and it could be more of a discouragement than an encouragement." Him coming in and doing that. Um, but again, thankfully, he has a lot more tact. Uh, he waits. He waits for three days. We don't know exactly what he's doing. He's probably praying. He's probably thinking about some strategy. He may be thinking about the the key people he needs to talk to. But he waited and he didn't tell anyone his plans because he needed to be clear in himself before he went to the people. He he knew he needed to take his team along with him. He couldn't do it by himself. He bides his time and ensures he has a full picture of the situation before addressing the leaders of God's people because he knows unless he has them on board, the whole project will be a non-starter. Uh, But when he does come to address the leaders of Israel, how does he persuade them to join with him? Well, he keeps three things in the forefront of his mind and theirs. And we've seen them all tonight. Firstly, this is verses 17 and 18. He shows them the need. So verse 17, you see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins. He says to the people, we are in dire straits there is a great need to rebuild the wall. But then he shows them the opportunity they have to remedy the problem. And he says, come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem. They have an opportunity to fix the need. So he shows them the need and the opportunity. And then finally, and perhaps most importantly, he shows them how God has been at work so far. Verse 18, I also told them of the gracious hand of my God on me. Nehemiah encourages his potential workers with personal testimony of how God has worked thus far. How encouraging is it to hear of God working in our day and age? How encouraging is it to hear how God is uh, using the Christian fellowship in Seven Trent and other companies? But how often do we share those stories? There's something great about having the missionary update every Sunday evening, isn't it? Because we are hearing of how God is working in different places in our world. And that encourages us to keep going here. So the potential discouragement is from God's people. But Nehemiah keeps his eyes fixed on the need, the opportunity, and the Lord at work. But the second discouragement is different. It comes from outside, and it's a theme that's picked up throughout the book. Uh, so verse 10, we are introduced to two characters, Sambalat and Tobiah, men who hated God and his people. Uh, in verse 10, we're told that they were very much disturbed, disturbed that someone was concerned for God's people. But at this point, nothing happens. But when we get to verse 19, there's a third man, Geshem the Arab, and the three of them make for a very influential and evil three And they begin their opposition by laughing and jeering at Nehemiah. And we're not going to go into the specifics of the opposition here. But the thing to see is how Nehemiah responds. Verse 20, I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. He looks back to what God has already done and trusts him for the future. He points to someone mightier than he. He fixes his gaze on the God who has thus far helped him. And he trusts him to help him in the future. And that is where our gaze should be fixed as we seek to do the Lord's work, especially when opposition comes. On him who, is able, who enables us to do that work. On the one who promises to be with us to the end of the age. So, Nehemiah sees God at work and trusts him for the future. So, as we come to close and prepare to head out into another week, into our workplaces, our schools, wherever we may be, let's be praying for gospel opportunities this week with our neighbours, with our colleagues. We see them every day. Let's pray for opportunities to speak the gospel. And let's be ready to take those opportunities when they present themselves, because they will. When we pray for opportunities, they will present themselves. And let's keep trusting in the Lord to be doing his work and be encouraged by seeing him at work.